This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're talking about Julia Kristeva's Hatred and Forgiveness, along with Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails. The theme is hatred. Helen, kick us off. Okay. Who states that thesis and antithesis lead us inevitably to a synthesis? Not Hegel. It's definitely not Hegel. The idea that a blurring of the best of two antagonistic phenomena will inevitably endow us with a wholeness beyond contradiction and lack is a progressive capitalistic fantasy. Capitalism promises that the intrinsic gap of lack, necessary to our achievement of self-consciousness of speech and of thought, can be closed by the purchasing of a commodity or the conquering of new lands, new ideas. Not only is to forgo lack to attempt to enact the impossible return to the oblivion of the womb tomb, but it is also to deny that antagonism, contradiction and rupture are intrinsic to every dimension, every object in our world. Substance is subject. To deny contradiction is to deny life itself. The logic of capitalism hitches a ride on death drive. Freud was right to indicate that the perpetual push to wholeness was in fact a push to death. It denies the very force of life itself, the productive contradiction that spawned our world the Big Bang, and it is a, brackets W, holy aspiration. To follow the market's unconscious logic is to claim that a being beyond antagonism created our world. To be a capitalist is to be religious, to believe. Syllogism is the true Hegelian insight. Different from the synthetic logic of capital, it is the logic of the concomitant existence of two contradictory truths. In our world, we don't have love or hate, nor do we have late or have, to brunchify the terms, but we have love and hate, necessarily existing together at one and the same time. We don't have modernism or postmodernism, nor do we have the ability to purify the antagonism between the two through the creation of some novel theory, but we have modernism and postmodernism, and work that displays markers of these two movements at one at the same time. Synthesis exists only in our dreams, in our fantasies. But in fantasy, there is always a closing of the book, a returning to earth with a bump, an inevitable eruption of the contradiction that we repressed in our temporary attempt to escape it. The ability to tolerate an ambivalent reality is more productive, less harm-producing, more reasonable than than to deny it. Politically speaking, ambivalence is the rock bottom on which a better, more constructive, less alienating, more dialectically unifying way of being in the world can be built. This is the logic of Marx's living flower and of Freud's ordinary unhappiness. Capitalism today projects the shimmerer of its own left wing, quite different from a real and existing left. It employs a tertiary interpretation of Marx, a Marx beyond antagonism. It favours a politics that foregrounds aesthetic characteristics and foregoes the market dimensions that create hate, anger, alienation and, uh, and annihilation, often emerging along those aesthetic lines. It shouts, don't hate, be nice, with an intensity and a rage that speaks to the fact of its repressed contribution to the hate it so thoroughly claims to despise. Aspiration for an impossible synthetic wholeness beyond the antagonism necessary to the market's continued existence forces its proponents to create enemies only beyond whom their imagined utopia can continue to exist. As the market rages on, as the repressed returns and must therefore be further repressed, the market weaponizes those that criticize it when they come with an alternative promise. Often, unfortunately, it must cancel those who come with a dialectical, non-utopian and therefore thoroughly emancipatory alternative. The weaponized, hollowed-out alternatives of promise become sickly sweet pearlescent veils, covering over the market's contradictions to an even deeper, more repressed degree. Any promise of wholeness will be marketized, however well-intentioned, however anti-capitalist, however anti-fascist, because at bottom, any projection of totality, of oneness, is capitalism's cousin, 
operating in entirely the same mode. We can only critique capitalism through contradiction beyond promise, beyond God. And we can only hope that we are not cancelled in the toxic name of non-antagonism in doing so. For there to exist metaphysical wholeness, for synthesis beyond antagonism to be logically possible, there must be a primary oneness, a primary phenomenon of the whole, which must be created at the hand of an undivided being, the God. But as Chris Davis states here, the lesson of psychoanalysis is that there is no undivided other, there is no God. We are all alone in the dark and daunting chaosmos. And this is good news. Just as there is darkness, there is light. And even more good news, we have each other. As Chris Davis says, there is no transcendental authority, just the interminable variance of transference and countertransference, and ultimately the imminence of transcendence here on earth. This imminence of transcendence is Marx's living flower and is Freud's ordinary unhappiness. Marx's theology of the market teaches us that there is an alternative beyond opium. Using dialectical reason, reason that foregrounds antagonism rather than seeking to repress it, we are able to see the flowers that decorate our chains. We are able to work to break these chains and pick the living flower, which only grows in the first place because of the screaming antagonism that marks everything, because of the contradiction of evolution itself, because of quantum oscillation. Freud's theology teaches us that we can move beyond the toxic antagonism of enemy-making genera generated by the deathly aspiration for wholeness of drive, that we can lower the stakes and live a life of joy and productivity in the spirit of ordinary unhappiness. The market has captured Marx, selling to us a synthesized version without antagonism, without edges, without grip. We must recapture the antagonism within Marx. The market has captured Hegel, telling us that the lesson of his work was a satisfying phony logical wholeness. We must recapture the antagonism of Hegel. The market has captured Freud, selling us a promise of subjectivity beyond contradiction, beyond dissatisfaction. When this promise inevitably fails, we create enemies of those who have wronged us. We become concretized in our perpetual victim status, unable to move forward, imprisoned by our own capitalistic resentments. We must again have Coke with sugar, coffee with caffeine, Hegel with Hegel, Marx with Marx, Freud with Freud. Freud's writings must be again read again in terms of their ambivalence. Perhaps most importantly, we must understand the ambivalence again of repression. Whilst repression of the traumatic inevitable contradictions of our world can produce toxic and unmanageable eruptions later in life, even though these repressions are often necessary for a time, a primary repression must take place in order to provide us with the sense of self, the ego, that is so necessary to navigating the chaosmos in which we live and the chaosmos that in fact we are. This is a repression generated by love, how bold one gets when one is sure of being loved. And it is a repression that is also characterized by a form of hate. Born too soon, we exist as external fetuses, living at the hands of the one that birthed us. Our second birth into subjectivity, into the awareness of language, is a birth of distance and separation, requiring us to forego this initial post-room home. We must be distanced from our primary caregiver in becoming our self-conscious, self-divided selves. This initial distance is a distance of rejection. A primary hate is necessary for the possibility of becoming a separate being, a distinct self, capable of emotion, capable of thought, capable of speech, capable of love. Love requires a tolerance of ambivalence. Without this generative rep primary repression, we are in incapable of encountering the ambivalent subjectivity of the other. We're incapable of living in community. We are only capable of, uh, of the total annihilation of the other, an annihilation beyond the capacity for love and hate. When we lose the capacity of encountering the messy subjectivity of the other, reflective of the messy subjectivity of ourselves, we become loners, solipsists, we become mad. 
I want to discuss how our contemporary market predicament and attempted synthesis of state and capital produces madness as a key disorientating side effect, but to do so would be talk, to talk for another 20 minutes or so. What I will say is that to understand this predicament where contradiction is so well repressed and where the resultant symptom it captures our gaze distracts us is to abandon the synthetic and to inhabit the syllogistic. We must understand the contradictory nature of everything, that it is productive when, re when recognised and toxic when repressed. Synthesis is magical thinking, illogical because of its totalitarian dynamic. It operates in a mode alien to the dialectical, contradictory nature of our universe. We are driven mad by it. We are inevitably bitten by the contradictions it attempts to repress. And in response, we develop even greater synthetic appetites, hoping even more for the oneness of oblivion, receiving instead even greater alienation, greater inequality, greater anger, greater violence. We need to create a politics of contradiction, a universalism of that which we don't share, of lack which generates love and hate, and thus, through the political, a love beyond hate. Synthesis is the opium of the 20th century person, the plasticky flowers that hide our chains in their sickly, non-committal abundance. Criticism that foregrounds contradiction, so apparently dangerous in a world where many cling so desperately to the promise of wholeness, is the only thing capable of exposing them. All right, Nina, you're up. <clears throat> yeah, so... I chose this um, topic, hate, because it kind of followed from some of our discussions at the end last week. And I've, I suppose I've been thinking about the intersection between hatred as a, a sort of shared emotion or possibility that everyone is, is capable of and hatred as an increasingly sort of large um, legal category um, and the kind of expansion of, of hate speech legislation and things like that that are happening in Scotland and elsewhere. Um, and I suppose more broadly, a culture in which um, to accuse the other of hate is a, is a kind of by now quite well-established uh, move. But uh, so from a kind of psychoanalytic and philosophical point of view, it seems to me nevertheless that we haven't really come to a collective understanding about what we mean by hate um, in any genuine sense. And so I, I suppose I'm interested in how and where those sorts of philosophical and psychoanalytic discussions can intersect with um, legal and um, more broadly cultural expressions of hatred um, and where we might want to locate hatred and who is doing the locating and I suppose I chose Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine um, because, in a sense, it's by, by now a fairly um, classic album in many ways, and it captures for me a certain um, sort of Gen X <laughs> um, element, which was, I suppose, if you like, the permitted expression of various modalities of negative feeling and emotion, however kind of um, theatrical they might be. And of course, Nine Inch Nails were linked along with Marilyn Manson and other kind of groups around this time um, to, uh, for example, like this idea of the trench coat mafia and the Columbine killing. And, and you know, there was a moral panic around music that seemed to um, celebrate or condone expressions of um, resentment or envy or anger and so on. But but nevertheless, I, I suppose, you know, of course we have to say millions of people listen to this album without um, therefore feeling inspired to 
go and murder people. Uh, the same is true of uh, any album that's listened to by anyone who performs such grotesque acts. Um, but what remains true is, I suppose, the fear um, in the moral panic of certain expressions of hatred. And of course, this periodically occurs when when we're looking at, you know, a lot of media, whether it's cinema or, you know, Chucky would be the film that was tied up with the Jamie Bolger case and, and so on. There's, there's often a desire, I suppose, to look for something like an object cause of um, apparent hatred so great that it would lead to um, murderous violence. And one thing I suppose a pretty hate machine um, the record uh, does is is um, exemplify or permit the expression of certain kind of unpleasant um, emotions. Uh, many early 90s or 90s albums did this. A lot of them were very self-excoriating. A lot of them were about depression and self-hatred and regret and angst and so on. I mean, maybe to, to possibly a slightly... Uh, over-exaggerated extent um, <laughs> and you have to wonder what what this sort of thing does to teenage brains um, and and you know music is is extremely effective in many ways at that at that time of kind of early adolescence um, in any case I'm not here to talk about the kind of I don't know neurological <laughs> or cultural consequences of these records but but rather I suppose to to ask what happens when you have a culture in which the accusation of feeling hatred or being a hater or someone who hates is increasingly kind of weaponized by those who would seek also to disavow the possible expression of this emotion in themselves in the name of precisely trying to establish a kind of pure or whole um, image of the world. And I like the Chris Deva essay very much because she repeats the, the Freudian uh, a point and that Helen outlined again, which which in a way is that that hatred is older or becomes first, um, you know, and it's not necessarily or straightforwardly the opposite of love. And I think her line here that that hatred, the object of hatred, unlike the object of love, never disappoints. So there is something incredibly pure about hatred in this way, or or the the, the fantasy of the object or the person who is causing you to hate. And and this is. Um, not like the ambivalence of love um, in any meaningful sense, but rather um, a, a much uh, perhaps cleaner and stronger feeling, um, which she links to uh, a discussion of um, paranoia and paranoid hatred, which she describes as uh, hatred without a trace of ambivalence, precisely. And for the paranoiac, then the world not only is meaningful, everything has a kind of uh, position, everyone is somehow in cahoots, every, every sign has a kind of um, a place within the system that is, never, is, is of course being constructed by the paranoiac and not actually in the world. And I think all paranoia is, um, is a question of knowledge. It's like the other knows something that I don't know. And there's a kind of paranoia, an epistemic um, paranoia that the other is is whole in a way and the other has something that I don't have and that what the paranoiac sees in his object of hatred is um, partly uh, it's partly down to a sort of question of envy perhaps um, but also like a kind of mysterious kernel that the other has that I, that the the paranoiac doesn't have and um yeah, I suppose that the, as she, as she said, paranoid hatred has transformed the uncertainty of abjection into a reversible dyad, sadomasochistic communicating vessels 
but it does not assure any lasting independence uh, in terms of identity. So for the hater, I think the paranoid hater, he he has to keep re-establishing the the kind of uh, the meaning of the object of his hatred to keep reinforcing it and saying, look, this person is still worthy of being hated and must be hated, and I hate this person and they must be punished, and everything I feel about myself I project onto this. Um, object of of hate, um, and I tried to write about this a while ago in a, in a kind of discussion about emotions and politics and the role of emotions and politics. I'm just going to read the last short couple of paragraphs in this um, this essay I wrote. Um, politics and the social becomes a game of love and the manipulation of love, which is itself ambivalent. Often today, our communal belonging is predicated on the idea that the other hates. We do not easily accept that we are capable of hatred ourselves. From this standpoint, there is always elsewhere the subject supposed to hate. Everybody, of course, wants to be a good person, particularly in politics. It is very difficult to admit or accept that one is, as everyone else, as equally capable of being harmful as being harmed. It is sometimes difficult to accept responsibility for one's own actions, particularly if you are a member or you identify as a member of a group that seeks to define itself almost solely in opposition to an outside, which is understood as overwhelmingly hostile. Yet the process of becoming mature and becoming an adult is precisely about learning to live with ambivalence and at the same time about taking responsibility for oneself, escaping the immaturity, as Kant puts it, that social control seeks to convince us that we inhabit. This question of who can grow up, as it were, is increasingly pressing in societies where young people find it harder and harder to access economically those earlier markers of adulthood, somewhere to live, the possibility of starting a family, or any kind of economic stability. Politics, though, when it becomes too pure, becomes a game of the investment of our own moral virtue into into our own self. But to say that we love and it is the other who hates does not help. To say that vast numbers of people are stupid or deplorable does not help. If someone says, we disagree on this topic and here is why, and the other replies with, there is nothing to discuss, I believe you are simply filled with hatred, there is nowhere to go. To moralise individuals or groups by claiming that one group is good and the other is bad, or even that one group is good because the other is bad, is to give up too quickly on the possibility of not only winning the argument, but of also, and at the same time, to give up on possessing a deeper and more revealing understanding of the relationship between love, hatred, ambivalence, and politics, in which things we are all, for better or worse, participants. All right, my turn. So... In Hatred and Forgiveness, Julia Kristeva locates the origins of hatred in our objection, in the horror we feel when we are confronted by our corporeal limitations. She identifies this behavior even in infants who instinctively recoil from unfamiliar food, even before they have the ability to make a symbolic distinction between the self and the other. The limitations of our body force us to accept that we are estranged from the rest of the cosmos, at least in this life. This forces us to erect some conceptual barrier between what is the self and what is the other. But the other is not monolithic. There are some things that are not us that we can nonetheless identify with or empathize with. We think of these things as similar enough to us that the realization of their separateness is not horrific. These things are familiar, but to have the familiar is to have the unfamiliar. 
To say that there are things that are like us, we have to occupy a particular position. And from that position, there will be other things that are too far removed to be familiar. Do we have to hate the unfamiliar? Not in every case. The unfamiliar can be sublime instead. Like the abject, the sublime viscerally reminds us of our corporeal limitations, but does so in a way that inspires awe rather than horror. We cannot assimilate the sublime, but we also do not need to recoil from it. Some people set about eliminating hatred by attempting to expand the realms which strike us as familiar or sublime. The expansion of the familiar involves conceptually recognizing the interconnectedness of matter, the possibility that in other circumstances we really could be the other. The expansion of the sublime involves appreciating the beauty of the unfamiliar, of the foreign, often on an emotional or visceral level. When I was a kid and I didn't want to go to events, my dad would say, pretend you're at the zoo. Instead of recoiling in horror at all these people, I felt I could not assimilate. My dad urged me to treat them with the same awe and fascination I would show when I met a zoo animal. When I tell this story, some people think my dad was dehumanizing these people for me. But at that age, it wasn't possible for me to recognize these other people as familiar. The only way to avoid hating them was to recognize them as sublime. At many points in my life, I found this to be the best strategy for managing feelings of hatred. It's not possible to treat everything as familiar all the time. This requires a level of cognitive energy that we can only have when things are just right. If you subject people to enough stress, they fall away from more energy-intensive kinds of thinking and lose the ability to see themselves in the other. It takes energy to see the other as sublime, but it doesn't take as much energy. Viewing the other as sublime also does not require you to revise your sense of self to incorporate the other. It is therefore much quicker and easier. It may take years of contemplation to see how the self is connected to the other, and even after years of contemplation, it will be difficult to hold on to that idea during periods of stress. Reaching for the category of the sublime is a quicker, safer way out of an immediate, pressing, stressful situation. When I was older, my dad told me that everyone adds up to 100%. When I'm seeing people's faults, I'm usually not seeing their strengths that there's value in looking for what is human, for what is familiar, in others. But I could only accept that strategy in calm moments when my sense of control was not under immediate threat. The strategy of the sublime may have been less perfect, but it was more practical. There's another problem. Even when we are armed with the concept of the sublime, there will be cases where hatred is unavoidable, if only because we remain embodied subjects. To make sense of our position, we have to make the self-other distinction, even though the construction of the self necessarily estranges us from the cosmos and afflicts us with lack. I could view other people as zoo animals, as sublime beings, only when those people were not directly threatening the things I considered familiar, the things I identify with. This means that one consequence of dealing with hatred by expanding the familiar is that we tend to contract the set of things we can regard as sublime. The more things that are familiar to us, the more ways we can feel threatened by the other, the more things there are for the other to threaten. This means that the more perfect approach, the approach of expanding the familiar, tends to undermine the more practical approach, the approach of expanding the sublime. Once you believe that everyone adds up to 100%, it's harder to look at people as sublime zoo animals. Everyone is either familiar enough that you believe they do add up to 100%, 
or they are unfamiliar enough that you can't get yourself to believe they add up. If they don't add up, and they can't be zoo animals, all you can do is hate them. For this reason, expanding the familiar is often a prideful approach, especially if the goal is to universalize the familiar, to give no room at all for the sublime. When we pridefully expand the familiar, we may shrink our hatreds, but we make those that remain more intense and implacable. Kristeva instead recommends interpretation. By interpreting the things we hate, we do not necessarily escape hating them, but our hatred is checked. We understand better why we hate what we hate, and this helps us avoid acting on our hatred in destructive ways. It also enables us to forgive ourselves and others for feelings of hate. Once we recognize that hate is a normal part of human experience, we can manage it without hating ourselves for experiencing it. So maybe my dad is right that everyone adds up to 100%, but there will definitely be many situations in which it won't look that way to me. Where I spot someone who doesn't seem to add up, I can, if I have the energy, view them as sublime. It's a wonder that such people manage to get through life with so many limitations and pathologies. Where do they come from? How do they exist? I can enjoy asking those questions when I'm in a good enough mood. But sometimes, if I'm having a bad day and under a lot of stress, I'll hate them. And when I do, I understand why. I do my best not to act on it in destructive ways. And I forgive myself the lapse we should do as well for others. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting what you're saying about Christave in terms of interpretation, because, of course, this, you know, interconnectedness or dialectical relationship that we have with everybody and that we are others or others exist in our eyes and we exist as, you know, as an identity within the eyes of others is our own implication when we hate somebody, how, you know, what it says about us just as much as the, you know, lapse of the other person. But it's interesting as well, that idea that hatred never disappoints, you know, it's true. When you, when you sort of, um, I call it annoyment. I love it. <laughs> I'm getting annoyed or you seek things that rile you. You know, there's always some way in which you can interpret this sort of like lapse in the other. They could be to this or to that. And this is something as well that, you know, sometimes you think about like ways in which you could be critiqued and you can never control it because A, it's in the eyes of the other, but one can be critique, critiqued in absolutely any way. One could be, um, it was interesting. There was um, something, uh, well, this this happens a lot in, in the industry I'm in where you have to apply for things like apply for grants or apply for awards or whatever. And often what is required is you have to show that you're meritorious enough, good enough, connected enough, successful enough. But also you have to sort of imply that you really need this thing at the same time. And so the thing is, it's like, you, you know, it's this it's endless game. And basically they're looking for something that for, for the whatever the um, ideological you know, impetus behind a project is or, you know, a, a, a grant system is, and you will fit it or you won't, and you can do your best, best too, but you're going to be interpreted in terms of this other set of, um, this other system that doesn't really capture your reality. So yes, you know, if, if we are hated, we're going to be hated. <laughs> There's not, not much we could do about it. Whatever we will be smile too smiley, we'll be too, too shy, too cavalier, too, over the top, too in your face, too retiring, you know, you just, you just never know. But also the, the other thing that I think you raised, you know, that I thought was really interesting is about this idea that um, uh, an art, a piece of art or music or a video game can inspire violence. And I think certainly what's happened in Afghanistan and the notion of terrorism 
really shows how ludicrous that is, how it, it is absolutely not an item that one enjoys playing and that we might get some you know, inspiration from that causes violence. It's the, in fact, precise opposite. Violence happens or hateful violence happens as a response to the belief that the other is, castrate, is uncastrated. One feels lack, everybody does, and one imagines that the other doesn't. Also, the other factor are things like, you know, wider societal issues. But if we look at sort of the the, the terrorist that, you know, 9-11's coming up, you know, it's really our own liberal system itself in all its apparent openness and not its, you know, um, abjectness in its apparent, um, in its sort of smug, um, you know, you can have your cake and eat it-ness is really the thing that inspires a desire to annihilate it. It's the showing of not as it, not as I said, like abjectness or, you know, um, criminal activity in a video game or sort of emotional music or rock music that has a bit of edge. It is the imagined sense that the other is unlacking, the uncastrated, unbound other who's having all the fun. That's what really inspires a desire to annihilate. Yeah, I think so. And I, I mean, it's, you know, I've said before, I think, but a lot of the people who have sort of been cancelled or me too are people who exhibit high levels of energy. You know, they're, they're often people who are kind of very lively and maybe a bit strange. And, you know, I think there's sort of increasing intolerance for um, people who are difficult, actually, or people who kind of um, are interesting, but odd or like have strange mannerisms. And, you know, this almost like this kind of... Um, frightened desire for conformity and homogeneity means that anybody who has something a bit weird about them starts to become like the object of suspicion. And I think because, um, you know, you're allowed to hate certain people, right? Like this is one of the rules of our culture um, and, and who the, those people are um, periodically uh, changes. And I think um, once you're allowed to hate somebody or you you are given permission and Aldous Huxley talks about that, we talked about this a few weeks ago, you know, then it's like the most delicious moral treat because you're allowed to be righteous in your hatred and who doesn't want that? Like, you know, you're allowed to really hate this person and, and of course everything they do confirms you in your hatred because like, you, you know, hatred is so pure and it looks for, for signs. So, so anything anyone says or does um, will reconfirm this uh, feeling that you have and you know, I I love that line like haters gonna hate. You know, like haters gonna hate. That that's that's literally what they're gonna do. Like that that is what they do. And um, in a way, they can't kind of help themselves. And I think the the interesting twist, although maybe this is always present anthropologically and socially, is that you know we're, you're allowed to hate the people who have been accused of hating. So you can hate the haters you know, the people who supposedly hate when you don't hate, you know, but you're allowed to hate them. Um, but that's, you know, it's not, that's not hatred. That's the right thing to do. Um, and, and it's interesting that Chris Daver, I think, goes back to kind of older religious ideas also of like forgiveness. Benjamin already mentioned forgiving oneself, but forgiving the other. And, you know, when you go to church and you say that um, the prayer and you, you know, you say, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And you do this every week and you think about what that means, you know, and you think, oh, yes, you know, like, and you, whether it's through your own thoughtlessness or, you know, you've done something because you were 
in a bad mood and you spoke out of turn or you were mean to somebody and you know whatever all of the micro things of everyday life and you know and then you remember that you were upset with somebody because they were said something to you or whatever I mean these tiny slights and these kind of you know thousand things that happen all the time which are in and of themselves not a big deal but do perhaps demand some kind of release and recognition and I think precisely in that kind of dialectic between forgiving oneself and forgiving the other that you that you find something else you know that allows you if you like to kind of put aside these slights and also to forgive yourself because you can't also walk around in a permanent state of guilt for everything you've done that's that leads almost directly to depression i mean you know very quickly <laughs> and and you know that that you have to t- in a way take steps to also think well you know i'm human too i made a mistake and you know da, da, da. um you know, and as everybody does, and everybody will, whether they want to or not, like nobody can be perfect. And I think this quest for purity or perfection in the object of hatred, you know, is, is a kind of perennial temptation, you know, that the idea that there is someone out there who purely captures everything it is that you hate about yourself and the world, and they exemplify it, and they embody it. And sometimes like when I'm being kind of, you know, monitored and surveilled by the people who do this to me all the time, I do sort of wonder like whether they almost like, it's, 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 it's kind of like, um, so excessive that I wonder if it borders on a kind of love, you know, like even people who like what I do don't pay as much attention to the things that I put out as they do, you know, or I don't even, you know, it's like the idea of like the pure fan is, is in fact like the pure hater. It's the person who is desperately driven and motivated by this desire to find something in you that will prove once and for all that you are this truly, truly evil person. Um, and what a pure manifestation of love this is in a very, very strange and awful way. Hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was just thinking there about like so, so the scapegoat, and obviously the person that it's acceptable to hate at any given time. So we organise, you know, our society is organised, always organised around some kind of thing that can't be held. We have a, a total vision and then the thing that doesn't fit just gets sort of shoved to the side. And so in a way, you know, the, the hate within oneself, we have an organized sense. And the hate maybe is something that we know is within ourselves, but we think is, you know, we want to imagine is out there, out there, out there. And sort of, um, obviously, Chris David talks about the sort of rejection, throwing up. We want to throw up the other and make sure that they're really well and truly outside of ourselves. But actually... Yes, the fact that the fact that they that they this perpetual desire to to, to ensure that they're out there to just keep checking that they're that they're, that they're, that they're cast out maybe speaks to the fact that they are well and truly part of ourselves, really. Yeah, I you know I'm thinking about you know those signs, for instance, that say "Say no to racism," right? Well, you don't meet racism on the street. You don't meet an ism. Isms are non-corporeal, right? So to reject an ism, if you live in a world, in a paradigm where isms are the causes of the problems, right? The only way that you can reject an ism is to identify ists. And then the ist is defined by their manifestation, their aesthetic manifestation of the ism, right? So then we get people who are hating just aesthetics they associate with ists when those ists are associated with isms. So you end up in in the states with liberals in blue cities hating pickup trucks because they identify pickup trucks with racists 
and they identify racists with racism. And so in an effort to hate racism, they hate pickup trucks. Mm -hmm. You end up with a, an aesthetic which has no inherent connection to anything substantive that comes in for all of this hatred, right? And even to hate the individual is, is to hate an aesthetic symbol of the thing which doesn't have any corporeal reality. But yeah, I mean, this is precisely how racism works. You know, you, you, the, uh, a society has an ideological, you know, a, a set of um, justification mechanisms or sort of narratives about itself and that which it uh, defines itself against, say, um, a lack of hard work, you know, in meritocracy, that you you earn your place and the person who hasn't earned it, it's a lack of, you know, it's their own doing. And then this is how, you know, then you associate some contingent manifestation that is caused by something else with this behavioral issue. I mean, that's literally, yeah. And then, and then suddenly a hair color, an eye color, a skin color becomes a stand-in for a dynamic that is wanted to be rejected that actually has nothing to do with this group at all. Yeah. And this is going to proliferate in a context where social problems are very complex and structural and their causes are opaque to most people. You're going to get these stand-in simplifying lenses. Uh, and then those lenses, of course, because they're abstractions, cannot be hated straightforwardly. Their hatred has got to be imbued into an idol an idol of hate. And I think that's uh, a lot of what's going on you know, when you say something like the problem is capital mobility or globalization or capitalism. Uh, these are very complex and multifaceted and everyone has a role in them. Everyone is part of them. So if you hate these things, there's no particular face that you can turn to and go, that's the one I hate because uh, that person is just performing a role just as all of us are performing roles in the world system, right? So you can't hate the world system. You therefore have to move to simplifying abstract isms, which you blame for, uh, for a, a world system that is a lot more complicated than any of those isms. And so even to blame the ism, you know, like uh, racism or sexism or whichever cultural signifier it is, is already to displace the resentment that one feels at the way global capitalism operates onto some culturalism. So it's already a displacement of hatred. And then that hatred has to be further displaced onto the ist. And then because the, the ist has all sorts of aesthetic, uh, a starter kit, an aesthetic starter kit associated with the ist, then the hatred moves to the items in the starter kit, right? And now you know, the liberal hates fedoras. But this is, I mean, the scapegoat in a way is always the stand-in for the thing. You know, it's always the lamb or the goat or the sacrifice is not the thing. This is how you avoid sacrificing people, <laughs> is you burn other things instead, symbolically and ritually in place. And, and you know, that something like the cultural field, let's say, is a place where you can have um, those sorts of virtual scapegoats, like, you know, albums that explore different aspects of hatred and anger are not the real expression of those things in a dangerous and violent way. They, they are a playing field, if you like, where those things can be um, felt at a distance, you know, and so listening to angry music or music that's hateful is not itself hate. It's actually a way of almost um, cathartically um, avoiding 
um, that being manifested in a real way. Like there's something kind of prophylactic about it, um, but real at the same time, I suppose. And um, I, I always think of this amusing slip. So I used to know someone who worked for Love Music, Hate Racism, which was a kind of like left wing festival. And um he was telling me that inevitably people would slip and say and call it love racism all the time, you know, so the people who were working on this project would forget the bit in the middle and just call it love racism. So they were organizing this festival called Love Racism. And um, I just find this very, very um, sort of funny, like that in a way the kind of if you have a too distinct polarity or binary between love and hate you inevitably mm. slip into calling one thing the other and this is sort of revealing of this kind of too simplistic um i don't know understanding of those two things which of course don't necessarily oppose each other in the way that we might simply you know in an everyday way understand i mean of course we can hate somebody that we used to love and precisely because we used to love them we might hate them um, because they they disappointed us brutally, or they left us, or whatever, or you know they did or said something unforgivable, um, you know. Whereas there doesn't need to be this. But this is what I suppose I'm trying to do in the kind of thinking through the reversal of love and hate. Like, if you begin with hate, can you ever start to love the the thing you hated, um, or do you end up ultimately loving the thing you hated? I suppose only if you start to love yourself in the same way for the same things that you that you hate in the other because they remind you of of things in yourself perhaps and you know there's i sometimes wonder about doing a kind of art project about the scapegoat and what it would mean if you if you did a call for um anyone wanting to take out any of their sort of hatred on you like you know and i guess there have been various art projects that do this um or present it as a possibility i suppose like um you know, where people could go and attack the artist or do anything they like to the artist. And, you know, there's been a few of these kind of cases. But I wonder almost like um, linguistically, let's leave physical violence out of it for a second, but whether, you know, if 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 you could pay someone to sort of berate them abstractly, you know, and I suppose this is what an- analysts do, you know, like Lacan says they are like rubbish dumps, you know, rubbish bins, like people just come and dump all their crap on the analyst you know, and get re- make themselves angry again about something that they are upset about or whatever. Um, but yeah, whether it would be kind of funny to do that, like to accept the role of like universal scapegoats or whether this is in fact like incredibly sort of, um, I don't know, like narcissistic in an inverted form, like to be the er masochist or the er scapegoat, um, I think <laughs> is also a kind of like sort of grotesque temptation somehow. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, is that, you know, in a way we have that today with the sort of the victim, you know, the, the, the perpetual victim. It's interesting that there's so, choo- so you obviously have this, 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 there's this thing called Choose Love in the UK, a refugee charity, I think. And this love music, hate racism. Well, it's like, well, if you have to have this image of the ism, which as Benjamin says is, is, um, is uh, embodied in an ist, you know, it's it's you you're unable to just love unconditionally, which I think is the aim really of psychoanalysis. The cure is actually just to be able to like love and inhabit the world. Um, but you have to, yeah, you have to have you're you're erecting this individual um hatee, and you are the hater. So uh yeah, I mean, and the thing is it's is it is it not some is it not just a, a form of racism to pick on an individual group that you imagine embodies something that um some 
overflowing pleasure that you are deprived of. That's literally the logic of racism itself. Um, yeah. 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 And I think nobody hates isms and ists more than the exist. The one oh, who absolutely. used to be an ist. Oh right. my gosh. Because once you've defined yourself as an ist and you've decided that's what you are, if you then leave that category, the act of leaving it forces you to flip the relationship around. And so you are just as dominated by your relationship to the ism and to being an ist as before. You've just inverted your set of feelings about it, which is why whenever I see that the Satanist, I think it's a, a sad thing. The Satanist has gotten so stuck because the Satanist is unable to really get out and has instead just created a negative relationship with the thing that the Satanist previously had a positive relationship with. And so is left still just as much under the thumb of the thing as they were before, but now they have to feel bad about it instead of good, which is just kind of sad. You see this um, very much with ex-evangelicals. Um, and there's a, there's a, a very intense um, woke dimension to a lot of people who, leave, who have left the evangelicalism that dominated the Southwestern United States in the 90s, for example. And, um, but as well as so that that's a form of belief as well that's a form of moral crusade um a, an attempted wholeness um that would would be granted were it not for people who just didn't adopt the ideology or who were haters or bad people or whatever um but also you get um people who become very very um spiritual um hippie spirituality as well so you just replace one thing with the other uh this is it's still very happy clappy. Obviously, there's a very hippie nature to, to evangelicalism itself, but it's still caught within this paradigm of solution. And because, by definition, we live in an, a you know a contradictory universe without solutions, other than solutions that emerge as a result of living into the contradiction, you have to have enemies to sustain the illusion of a solution. Do you have to have enemies? I wonder about this. I, I was thinking about, there's quite an interesting, lengthy, well-researched article in The Atlantic today about cancel culture in which the, I think it's Anne Applebaum, goes through a whole list of, um, I don't know, famous and not so famous cases. And some of them are anonymous. And it's, it's like proper journalism uh, that you see quite rarely. <laughs> and you think, oh, yes, I'm glad you got paid to do this. This was actually worthwhile. Um, unlike most things that pass for journalism these, these days. But anyway, um, and one of the things she, she points out, which is kind of obvious, but worth stating is that when, you know, people famous or otherwise are, let's say, mobbed or, or cancelled, and, and when people try to apologise, or they try to say sorry, they're never really forgiven. Like the apology often makes it worse. Uh, the apology doesn't work. People think that the apology is insincere. And, you know, I was thinking about in relation to the Christaver essay, uh, why that might be. And I think it's because the, the apology of one human to another random bunch of anonymous humans to which they um, undoubtedly haven't done any direct harm, right? So in a way, there's no guilt there. There's no harm. You know, the, the harm is imaginary in many ways. Like it's a kind of fantasy of harm. Like this person has said something offensive. Well, it didn't offend me, but I know it's offensive. So I'm going to be offended on the part of the person that I imagine would be offended by this person if they meant it. And da -da -da. Um, is is also that the uh, the apology um, from one human to another group of humans is needs to be mediated by a third 
because ultimately, and this is why religion works, this is why forgiveness in Christianity, for example, makes sense, because in a way, you're not asking for forgiveness from another human being directly. It's mediated through uh, a third, a figure, Christ or God, you know, in which you are asking for forgiveness from this triangle, not from this horizontal line. Um, which is never going to work because nobody wants an apology that they didn't ask for even or that they didn't feel the harm for, right? It's not to say, of course, that if you have upset someone, you shouldn't apologize, of course, you know. I mean, people, if they can, I mean, not everyone can. Sometimes it's unbearable to to apologize and people simply don't do it. They'd rather cut ties than say sorry or admit that they've done something wrong or upsetting. Um, But where there has been harm, real harm done to a real other, it's, that's a different thing, but the public apology, in a way, is ne- is by is structurally never going to work somehow. Mm-hmm. I think this speaks to you know we've talked a lot about the divided nature of the human, and you have the the actual material aspect of humanity, which you know let's say a, a slight of somebody might be you know nicking someone's car, boring someone's car, and breaking it in some way. Of course, you would apologise, and that's like a real material thing. But then there's also this experience of transcendence at the level of subjectivity through division. And because of that, we have these sort of like collective overwrought experiences of wrongdoing, which are not the same as like an actual, so so things take on a greater sort of spiritual significance over and above the actual wrongdoing. So for instance, it's like the, the hysteric and the disease, the hysteric, you can be a hysteric, so toxically, I'm sorry, Hypochondriac, you can be a, a hypochondriac and still have a disease. You know, you can be toxically obsessed with getting ill and actually at the same time being ill. But that illness does not, con, you know, does not um, co- uh, delete the fact that you have this excessive experience of toxic ob- obsession with illness. And so the same goes. So you have like an actual, you know, concrete accident that you need to repent for. But then you have this spiritual dimension, so to speak quote unquote, <laughs> um, that, that takes on this sort of greater um, energy that is not really solvable just by a sorry. And I think that, so, so we have this um, hypochondria, whilst also at the same time, yes, you know, I'm not saying that like, for instance, hate crimes don't exist or uh, racism doesn't exist and all these things that people do actually face and deal with. But I think when it, when it uh, enters into this Thing that we that it's just a mark of being human. This is not to say that like people who are hypochondriacs are evil in any way. This is just like, a matter of fact of being a human speaking subject. But when it is in within that mode, it's a sort of a spiritual obsession that is not going to be chased away or eradicated with a, with a mere apology. Um, which yeah, and I mean Hegel talks about this a lot in terms of what he sees as a solution to society um, as, as ha- there has to be sort of a being or a person who countersigns the will of the people and has this sort of projected, you know, more than-ness to them. You know, as I was listening to that, I was thinking, what would it be like to have a being that felt no hatred at all? And my mind drifted to a meme. It's called the Globglow Gabgalab. You guys seen this? No. comes from an old animated Christian documentary. And Globglo Gabgalab uh, lives in a basement in a room full of books. And he's been bewitched by the Rat King. He can assume any form or any shape he likes. 
and he pours himself into books where he absorbs all of their ideas. And it doesn't matter what the book is, what is, is contained within the book, he absorbs the ideas and they nourish him. And then he emerges from one book and moves on to the next book. And he doesn't remove the words from the pages. He doesn't damage or hurt the books in any way. But he nourishes himself from the books, and all of the books nourish him the same. He gets something out of all of them. Some of them taste a little better than others, but he gets something out of all of them. And in the movie, he's problematized because he can't distinguish between good books and bad books, right? And so the Rat King that has bewitched him has also bewitched a lot of these books, and these books contain all kinds of damaging or, or troubling uh, words that the Gabgalab can't interpret as evil or as pernicious, that he can't reject. He just, whatever it is, he takes it, and he's, he's happy. He moves on. The thing about him is there's nothing particularly threatening about him because he, he doesn't get upset about anything or anybody. So, and he can assume any form that he likes. And so when the Christian character Strawinsky shows up and, and tries to get him to help him find his friends who have been corrupted by these books, the Globgo Gabgalab uh, is perfectly nice to him and all. Uh, he's just not particularly exercised about anything. And he doesn't have any particular form or shape to him. You know, so, and I think this is what it would be like to be completely without hatred. It would be to be kind of formless and to not really have any response to anything and to kind of go through the world in a sort of nihilistic way, uh, finding every book that you read kind of impressive, but not necessarily going, I like this or I don't like it, or I agree with this or I don't agree with it. Uh, to, to be able to say, I don't agree with this requires some level of capacity to hate, some level of it, uh, because the sublime is, is, a too, is a too neutral reaction. And so we need a certain amount of hate just to distinguish between good and bad in the first instance. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is very, this is kind of Freud's point in a way, like hatred comes before love and hatred in a certain sense, also Hegelian as well, but is in, a first, in the first place an assertion of something being against the object or being against something else. I mean, it's a principle of discernment. Um, you know, hatred is a, or hate is a very emotive word. Like it, it, it has a kind of um, embodied uh, sensation, I think, even when people talk about it, which is why it's almost kind of taboo in a certain way sometimes to to even talk about hate. Or, you know, if you say, I hate X and Y, it can sound more extreme than, than perhaps is sometimes intended. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely kind of necessary. And I think um, Chris Davis' point here really is to sort of, um, in a way that the abjection and the kind of um, hatred will always be reborn, you know, so even if you engage in this process of forgiveness in the religious sense, or you uh, understand, you know, rationally and psychoanalytically that, uh, you know, that, that hate is a perfectly natural phenomena and ambivalence is how we live. And, you know, we can love and hate the same person and all of these sorts of very mature things. Um, it will always be kind of renewed. And this is what Hegel says about desire as well, you know, like our desire for the object, we can't just eat one meal and have done with it, unfortunately you know, we have to eat again at some point, like the desire will return, 
you know, the, as long as we are alive. And so we have to kind of abnegate or destroy the object again. And this becomes much more complicated when we're dealing with other self-consciousnesses because in the act of desire, we hopefully don't consume them completely. It's not the same as food. You know, we have to kind of uh, exist alongside them and persist, you know, and the life and death struggle in the master-slave dialectic is... Um, you know, an extreme kind of uh, analogical version of that kind of um, antipathetic encounter with another consciousness. And, and and of course, you know, the narcissism of small differences, we often have an antipathy to people that we have something in common with, you know, because in a way what we do is we, we often immediately project something about ourselves onto this person and then reinterpret it back negatively. And, you know, it doesn't even have to rise to the level of rivalry. You know, it doesn't have to be, oh, this person does what I do. They're in my field. You know, I feel this sort of slight, like, you know, competition with them. It doesn't even have to be like that. Sometimes you can, I was thinking about this today, like sometimes when you meet new people and there's a weird mutual antipathy that is maybe never even described or explained or or understood. Maybe later, if you get to know that person, you might, oh, when I first met you, I hated you. I didn't like you at all. And because oh, I didn't like you either. And, you know, that's a kind of fun conversation. But, you know, often it doesn't really uh, come, you know, happen like that. But but sometimes I think there is an antipathy or you feel an antipathy that you don't really know what it where it's coming from. It's often very, very strange, these forms of like, almost like unconscious and, you know, pre-conscious sorts of um, yeah, like uh, resistances or oppositions mm -hmm. that people develop. It's interesting. The narcissism of small, small differences, obviously there's a thing of like somebody uh, inhabiting your territory, you know, sort of get on my perch. But also I think that there is something about an enjoyment of seeing somebody else embody those aspects of a same dynamic because, you know, a dynamic is a dynamic and at some point it will end up in its opposite. So if you say, you know, you, you cast yourself as a morally correct leftist, for instance, but a leftist position actually is antagonistic to the capitalism that promotes the kind of niceties that are convenient to the market as veils to, you know, to hide the, you know, surplus value exploitation, alienation, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, to, to go with the courage of your leftist conviction is to inhabit an aspect that isn't woke. And so to to point out all of those people who got it nearly right, but then they just, you know, they put they leapt off the little um beam of the gymnastics dance and look at them over there. And it's sort of like an enjoyment of seeing somebody else having done the thing that you actually would have, just because of the dialectical nature of everything. It could be leftism, it could be conservatism, it could be religion, it could be being a good teacher, being a good I don't know, chef, anything, you know, there's a dialectical nature to everything, but you resist the dialectic. The other inhabits the flip side of the dialectic and you are very satisfied that that other person has done it, but not you. Um, and it serves to you as a warning of what could, what could go wrong if you, if you um, inhabited the sort of <laughs> the dialectic of whatever you're doing. So in sum, you can't reject hate without hating hate. And if you hate hate, then you have a second degree hate, which is concealed from yourself. And that will be harder to manage than first degree hate. Basically. All right. So that takes us to roughly the end of the hour. So we're going to move over and do the B-side for our listeners on Patreon. You can subscribe to that Patreon if you want to hear it at patreon.com slash the lack podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you.
拜拜。Bye.